ridiculous. Welcome, friends, to Perfect Stranger Things, a weekly dance of joy for your eardrums. I'm your host, Anthony. Today, we're covering Dear Billy. Is this the best show of the season so far? Is this the best show of the entire series? It very well could be. Oh my gosh, what an episode. The Will and Mike stuff continues to be really fascinating. The shootout at the Byers' new Lenora house is really well done. And of course, we have the Max versus Vecna episode here. Steve and I were both really impressed with this. But before we get to that, a bit of pithy piety from the cutest cowboy you ever met. That's right. It's Mr. Wilford Brimley. You got a story in here. This is a damn story you ever read. Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to sit right here and talk about it. Talk all day if you want it. It's the right thing to do. This one I had a little bit of warning for. I had a friend who was saying, hey, just just hang in there till episode four. It's gonna be really great. So so was this friend suggesting that the first three were like uh, more of a chore or I think he was thinking I think it's got potential, but I'm not sure. Suspend judgment. And then when he got to episode four, it was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is great. This is going to so be great. I, yeah, I will say I'll agree that the four was sort of the turning point for me, but I was already in. I yeah. wasn't I wasn't feeling like in the first three that I was having much of a of an issue. I mean, they were like still, you know, you have questions, you have this or that, but I was already pretty hooked uh-huh. for four might be the most significant episode of the series interesting i can't wait to talk about this so i had a i had a problem with number one i was a little bit reluctant on number one and then two hooked me and then i stopped because of our recording schedule i stopped at the end of three and i liked three a lot but i think that there were a few things that got me my head scratching on that one Mm -hmm. not that it ever ruined my enjoyment of it but i was built up for four and i was a little bit worried like am i too built up for this and it delivered i thought this was a wonderful episode so tell me why you think it's a significant episode well i mean maybe maybe it's just my reaction i've seen it twice um and we talked about how I think, and I don't know if we talked about it so much on the pod, but I know we've talked about it together about like, hey, we really like this season. And I know we've been sort of critiquing a lot of little aspects of the season. And I think that is a, a testament to our appreciation for the show overall that mm-hmm. um, that we would get to, like, we had to get down to the real details to, to start finding things to quibble over, which means that we have an investment in it. <laughs> yeah, um, <sure. laughs> You know, sort of like our children. Um which which do age out of that, by the way. You you just get to a point where you don't care about the details so much, and you just actually you don't care about a lot. Um, I'm not the, there yet, but I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it for you. I don't want to get your hopes up for that particular episode of your life. But it <laughs> let me just say uh, it gets better. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it, once once like full apathy kicks in, mm-hmm. you know, like when your when your spouse has to like remind you. Not that you have a child, but that you probably should be interested. <laughs> I needed that little glimmer of hope. Yeah, it's a great spot. It's a sweet spot, man. Write it out. Um, but yeah, so we so we were comparing it sort of like to the first one because I think I think conventional thought, especially amongst ourselves, was like, well, that nothing beats that first season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, there's there's something about it too because it's you have no frame of reference. You're just taking it all in. You're getting introduced to everything, so it had it holds a special spot, not only nostalgically but also it has an opportunity to do something that subsequent seasons don't get to do, and that's really surprised you, right? Yeah. So, so going into four, I really liked it, and I was really into it, and kind of flirting with, hey, am I a prisoner of the moment, or is or is this my favorite one so far? Um, and I think uh, episode four does does the thing that puts me over the top. Where I go, oh the, yeah, I might like this better than the first season because I got, hmm. I got, I don't know that I felt the way I felt in in episode four in any 
uh, episode prior. I was always like really hooked, and but this was this one got me, and it, I think a lot of it goes to the character of Max and mm. and the performance mm-hmm. surrounding that. But just the way that they built this narrative for a character that is is relatively new to the scene, right? So it's not one of the OGs, and I, man, I I don't know that I. I blinked, uh, unclenched my teeth the first time <laughs> I watched this episode. It, it, because I really didn't know what was... I, I, I did not know what they were going to do. And I and I wouldn't have faulted any decision they made, to be honest. It just Yeah, there gonna... were a couple surprise moments in this episode. And you're thinking, well, this could go any... This could go any direction. This... this I kind of feel like they have earned enough cred at this point. They've heard enough of my trust that they could really throw me a curveball, and I'm I just I just don't know what they're gonna do. I just had no idea what they were gonna do. I really felt like if they killed Max, the story is so compelling. Yeah, even beyond that, right? And as disappointed as I would be, I was like, this is gonna this is gonna the stakes are gonna go real real high. And then they don't, and I didn't, and, and then, so you start creating, I start sort of walking myself through that narrative, like what, what happens, what happens next, what happens to the kids, like this is the first like character that they've given us every opportunity to, to attach to, to then remove, like they don't do that typically, mm-hmm. we've talked mm-hmm. about that, that's been sort of like the secondary characters or supporting characters, so this would be a much, much different approach, much more Game of Thronesy. um, and much more like it's the show would completely have grown up at that point. Yeah, and you know, we as we talked about before, they've killed characters, right? We've seen sure. we've seen characters die, but I don't think we've seen I don't think the show has been as willing to kill one of the Scooby-Doo gang, right? Right. You can make the argument that the characters that they killed, they created to kill. Sure, like Barb. Barb was doomed from the beginning, uh, so I don't know. It's yeah, and then the, of course we've Billy, seen yeah. uh, you know three three ch- childhood or high school deaths in this just in this season, right? Right, yeah. and it's it was a death every episode up until this episode. Right, so that's the thing is that like so it's a it's a moment where it's and and I, and I like a you know a complicated narrative i like i like when they challenge you know me as a a viewer so i was Mm -hmm. not wanting her to die but i was completely okay and like you said trusting that uh her death would not be just a shock value thing there would be some there would be there'd be something to it but in the same way her survival would also have to be right um and they built the tension in such a way and they gave me enough uh, and I think because, like you said, there have been so many young grizzly deaths, they they sort of set a tone in this season that says, "Hey, you never know, you just never know." Well, and I and I just I just had this sneaking suspicion about Max from episode one, and so then you know when I see the parallels between her and Chrissy, and then I start to th- see the Vecna vision, I thought. Are these guys going to do it? Are they going to do it? Because I don't know. I'm not sure if they will or they won't. And and I care about her more this season than I ever have before. Right. And it would have been a powerful thing, too, to sort of upend your viewing experience where, yeah, I mean, you're watching these other kids die, but... Because you're not invested, you sort of like, ooh, this is spooky, you know, as opposed to this is tragic. <laughs> sure, yeah. So it would have been, and even though she did survive, it did sort of put everything else into a perspective as a viewer because it was like, well, all those other kids were, were somebody else's max, right? I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> potentially. Uh-huh. And and so so it really kind of, it did a lot to, to put me emotionally through. So even when she survives, it's not, I'm relieved, but... It did a really good job of now upping the baddie, upping the stakes. Uh, um, yeah. Now, now I am, and I'm also not necessarily convinced that she's free and clear. And, and we see in later episodes, she doesn't act like she is. I mean, she's going to listen to that music all day. 
<laughs> which which I think is a really, I mean, I know we're jumping ahead to uh, further episodes, but I mean, I, there's something really, I think that's such a great uh, addition, the idea that it's like, well, I'm never taking this song off again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then of course, you know, if I liked a song, I would listen to it over and over and over until I was sick of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was always kind of a concern. You're like, I really like this song, but if I listen to it 30 times, am I going to like it anymore? Right. If it saves your life, then yeah. I guess so. I guess so. All right. I've identified five storylines and one, what I'm calling a non-storyline that I want to talk about. Mm. And uh, so I got I got a six-sided die, and I'm going to roll it. Have yourself a two. All right. Uh, Max, Dustin, Lucas, and Steve... Max recounts her Vecna vision and explains what the Vecna Vecna victims have in common. Then Max reveals that she is having the same symptoms of the Vecna curse. She is convinced that she will die tomorrow. Lucas shows up and tells Dustin that the basketball dummies are after him. Max says goodbye to her mother and goes to Billy's grave. She reads him her letter. Then Vecna comes for Max in the form of Billy. In Max's vision, she sees pieces of a haunted house and is strangled by a tentacle. Then she yanks a dreadlock eel from Vecna's head and runs. I'll be honest, Steve. When I saw the trailer for this season, they've got this... uh, Got this little scene where Billy is playing the electric guitar on the upside down. Is that right? Do you remember this? Uh, I don't. I did not watch the trailer intentionally. Okay. Well, then I just spoiled it for you. Okay. Um, and I was thinking, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is where you and I are very different. Because <laughs> I just got something revealed to me that I'm like, oh hell yes. <laughs> so I'm thinking, no, Billy's dead. Come on, you can't bring him back. And for some reason, he's playing guitar, electric guitar, on the upside down. You can bring him back to play the electric guitar and the upside down, dude. That's amazing. I love the idea that this is all about just trying to put together a killer band. Well, I think that Karoda Coffin could use an upside oh, down lead guitarist for sure, right? But when they brought Billy back this episode, I was thinking, this is perfect, perfect. In fact, I want Vecna to look like Billy the whole time. I, I, mm. th- this is the perfect way to get at Max. This is exactly how to like mess with her psychologically. She's written a letter to her, her dead brother, and her dead brother talks back. This is sufficiently creepy. And, of course, I think that Billy, upside down Billy is a bit more creepy than Vecna is, I think. Um, just less CGI, I guess. So I, I like that. I, li- I like the uh, the Billy... Upside down Billy, I guess. I think that that um, that sequence was so moving. I mean, it was just such a, a. I mean, everything that they did, I felt like when we talked about like the the choices and how long they take to do something. Um, I think they were pitch perfect in the length of time that they spent on that yeah, entire Max right. sequence. It was the tension built. So, and again, watching it a second time because, like, you know, when you watch something that like kind of makes you tense the first time you see it it feels like it goes on forever and then you watch it a second time you're like oh i was just kind of what i was feeling so i was able to really watch it and go this is really great uh just it's great directing it's great editing everything is really well done in terms of like i was still like like i knew what was going to happen so i don't have that that type of tension but i was sufficiently uh, engrossed the second time well and for me the first time I did not know if she was going to die or not. And so right. when she says, I'm probably going to die tomorrow, everything in this, everything the story has told me so far makes that a very plausible outcome. She is going to die tomorrow. She's smart enough to know it. She's facing her own death. And here are these guys that, I mean, they're kids, they're teenagers. They want to console her. And she's inconsolable. And not not in the sense that she's sobbing, but she's just resolved. Yeah. And so you really feel that helplessness. You really want someone like Lucas to tell her it's okay and for her to believe it. And the show's not going to give you that. I'm sorry, what is this? It's, um, it's a failsafe. For after. 
you know, things if they if they don't work out. I, I just, um, with all the murders and everything, I, I know it's stupid, but I just started to think, what if something happens to me? So I thought that they played that really well. Yeah, and it is amazing, though, for a show that hasn't really killed off main characters. But because of the way they presented the season and the way that they directed everything and, and just... It would not have felt like, whoa, I can't believe they did that. It would be like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's how it has to go. It was really a, a tough one to kind of sit through because it did. It was agonizing. What are they going to do? I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. ready for it. And, mm-hmm. that, and so I'm more leaping to, well, what does that do for the story? What does it do for Lucas? What does it do for these kids in general? Um you know, and there's no going back from that, you know, and that's, it's, the, so I, it was, it was, it was moving, um, you know, much has been made about the song, of course, and how uh, Kate Bush is, has this resurgence. Now, I was never a Kate Bush, like, I don't, I don't feel like, I don't know if I've ever heard this song before. I had never heard it before this. Okay, so it seems like to me, like, and maybe it was because I was interested in other kinds of music when I was this age or whatever. But uh, it's a great song. It's, a, it's yeah. A, uh, my it's perfect for, for this particular theme too. Right, and my my understanding for Kate Bush, like you know, it's kind of a little bit more, maybe I don't want to use the word eccentric, but like kind of it's a little bit out out there in terms of like not not near mainstream. Sure. Uh, music that so. You know, She's a deep cut, right? Yeah, and what we're listening to at that age is yeah we're. we're give me the hits, man. <laughs> you know that's kind of where I was. Well, but you also had like. Um, like early on that first season, Jonathan had a more eclectic music musical taste, right? Sure. Um, do, were you a were you a Sanyo Walkman or a Sony Walkman? I was yeah. probably neither. I would say I probably more the Sanyo. Uh, but yeah, Sanyo makes sense to me. But that was definitely like I was. I don't know if I had ever had a Sony Walkman. I never in my life. It was always sort of like. You got to be. I mean, look, Sony Walkman. That's like seventy bucks. You, right? You, are you rich? Are you rich? Right? Yeah, exactly. You could buy a Sanyo Walkman for thirty nine dollars. So why not buy the Sanyo? So I was always a Sanyo guy. I remember having the kind of Walkman that, like, you couldn't even. There was no rewind. You had to flip the tape over and fast forward <laughs> it to rewind. Right. Yeah, because they they saved money on a button. Yeah. Like we just can't figure out how to make this go the other direction, <laughs> but I can make it go this direction real fast. Yeah, so this the Sony Walkman that was top of the line. It was like the Cadillac of Walkman. Yeah, which is wild because I mean, a Walkman is a Sony product, but it became one of those things like how Kleenex just became mm. the term for any old tissue. So was the Sanyo? Did it? What was the Sanyo? It was like a cassette player. It was probably like portable cassette player or something. Something like that, like that right? But we just call it a Walkman. Yeah, we were, we were fronting. Now I remember it being a little bit scandalous. There was like this, um, in the same way that a lot of adults have anxiety about their kids being on their phone all day long. Mm. I think there was um, there was about a four or five year period where there was this sort of like parental scare about how much kids are actually isolated from the world around them because they're, they've always got earphones on their ears. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this show was interesting in that it's like that's actually her salvation. Right, right. This is not like the demon that's going to, uh, you know, ruin your child's life. It's actually the the angel that's going to save your child from depression or something. Yeah, and that's you know, I think that would be another Duffer Brothers move, right? They're re- they're kind of flipping the things that they they grew up with being maybe a little bit more dangerous or taboo on on yeah, its yeah. ear, right? Yeah, right. Like I mean, just the you know, as well, just just the idea of. It is kind of wild. I was kind of like, I can't believe it took this long for there to be this much emphasis on that whole satanic panic period of our lives. Mm. That was pretty significant for for a while. Really brought me back to a time where I'm like, this was not just a a small part of our uh, our, our upbringing. This was, you know, especially you and I growing up in religious households too. Well, yeah, and any look, it was like every single bit of rock and roll music carried the risk of demonic possession right? right it wasn't like this is it's not like you could avoid it 
It was right. like rock and roll music's basically everywhere. MTV is going to ruin everything. There was just this this sense of dread about where the culture was going at this point. Yeah. Do you remember the first cassette tape you owned outright by yourself? It wasn't like something that you borrowed. It was it wasn't a uh, siblings. It was just something that you owned. Wow, that's a that's an interesting one. I mean, because I knew of the cassettes that I had um no i don't think i can remember do you do you have that well yeah i do i i I remember for christmas my parents got me i think two beach boys Mm. cassette tapes i think they thought you know wholesome whatever sure and then when i had saved enough money to buy my own cassette tape it was run dmc raisin hell nice and right. then, then, of course, there was the concern because, of course, it's raising hell. Right. And th- that was, of course, the my my parents were a little concerned about hell in general. So, anyway, that was sort of my connection. Well, I remember my, my I think I, my mom had to buy me. Uh, this was in 88, 89, I think. So, I mean, not my first cassette by any stretch, but I think it was the first time I had to have my mom buy me a parental guidance. Uh, oh, I think it was the old parental guidance. Somewhere. Yeah, I think it was Appetite for Destruction by you know, Guns N' Roses. Right, right. And so it was like a little bit of like, oh, if I should be buying my son this, you know, it's got skulls on it. And, sure, sure. Now, before that, and I think that this is what might have prompted the Beach Boys purchase, is that I was sneaking into my sister's room and grabbing Purple Rain from her selection. Ah. So I was listening to Prince. And of course, Prince is like, you know, super sexual. He's going to confuse you. <laughs> so I think that was, the, I think that was my first memory of wearing out a cassette tape. It was Prince's Purple Rain. And then of course, my parents were trying to save my soul through the Beach Boys. Which, right. Yeah. Which wound up with just me buying Raising Hell by Run DMC. Well, it's just funny when you think about like the lifestyle of the Beach Boys versus Prince, who was you know Jehovah's Witness. It's a by comparison. It's a little weird. It's a little weird to think about. Like everyone's just like, oh man, that Prince guy. Wow, he's like on MTV with his butt hanging out of his pants, and he's making all these racy movies, and also uh, doesn't celebrate birthdays. <laughs> that might be the wildest part about him. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. 
the thrills of King's Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Number five. This is the Joyce and Murray plot. Mm-hmm. Turns out Murray is a black belt in karate. The two bring Yuri $40,000. Yuri drugs them, ties them up. That's all I got for these these guys. A <laughs> <laughs> lot, lot of time spent on, on Joyce and Murray. Uh, I do like that Murray is a black belt in karate. I think for most characters, it, it's a little tropey or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm happy to have Murray with that ability. Well, right. I think the, I think what makes it great is that now you're in a position uh, where you're like, well, who needs anybody else? Remember, Murray was the guy that like he was the translator, or conspiracy theories might be leading to something, and yeah. and he's done some of the research. And now you're telling me that maybe he's a bit of a like a physical asset as well. <laughs> I mean, Murray's the All complete right. package. Forget <laughs> Hopper. You know what, Joyce? Let's make this happen. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let me let me ask you a question. There was a moment in the 80s where being a black belt in karate, I mean, you might as well just say that you're the president's son. Oh, know, yeah. That you're a Kennedy. You could be a Kennedy or you could be a black belt in karate and you might just choose black belt in karate. <laughs> yeah, being a Kennedy is a, is, is a social black belt. <laughs> and it was sort of this moment where if you could, if you claimed it and you might have like that kid on your junior high playground who would claim it? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it was kind of like there was a mystique about that person. Like, are they? Is this really? Is this guy really a ninja? Or is, is he, he just, a sleeper cell? Is he a liar? <laughs> so I'm gonna have. Yeah, I mean, if he's a liar, like, so I can't accuse him of being a liar because he was a black belt and dead. <laughs> That's right. And then it was. It didn't take long, but it it was about a two year moment. And then after that, you're like, if you someone claimed that they were black belt in karate, it was like you rolled your eyes and be like. No one's a black belt in karate. Karate's not even real. You know, you just you totally... There's a, cult, a cultural expiration date on karate. It was. It absolutely was. So I thought it was really wonderful that Murray claims this. Yeah, you know, it's funny too. And like, and if you were, let's say, I don't even know how the belts work, but let's say you were a yellow belt compared mm-hmm. to everybody else, you might as well be a black belt. So just say it, right? I mean, like in class, show the respect. But like, if you're on the playground, yeah, I'm a black belt, but chances are, I mean, by comparison to my, the only thing I know how to do is like make the sounds. Mm-hmm. I forget it. <laughs> it always seemed like, even though you could take a class like almost anywhere, it still felt like super, like, like uh, unaccessible, right? Well, it was, it's like taking a class and being a superhero. It's like... <laughs> Like or a, if, you, like, if you were me in junior high, it's like taking a class for anything. Are you telling me I have to do any type of work? No, thank you. No, thank you. Well, no, you, I can train you to be an absolute badass, and like you can, you can catch bullets with your teeth. I'm like, mm, yeah, but like, can I just fill out a form? They're like, no, no, you got to go to class, and then we're gonna give you things to do to to learn outside of class. I'm like, oh, you want me to go sign up for homework? Yeah, I'll just get my ass kicked. Thanks. <laughs> I I begged my mother for karate. I I begged her so many. I probably begged her thirty times when I was a kid. I want to want to take karate. Want to take karate. Never ever ever. My mom wouldn't let me play with toy guns. My mom. Oh, so was not... a, this was a, a pacifist thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. So this was sort of like we are not going to let you go learn how to be violent. That was oh, the view. Absolutely. It was she didn't want you to turn on her like a robot event. <laughs> so of course, you know my favorite GI Joe characters were Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes. Oh, and, for sure. You know, I, uh, I would Quick Kick. Quick Kick was the other one that was. Good. I would. Oh yeah, sure. Quick Kick, and then I would fold uh, throwing stars out of binder mm. paper, make my own nunchucks. Uh, you know, there was it was just this fascination. I had like karate posters on my wall. I would have. Remember, I, do you remember when the shopping center with the Lucky and Longs opened up in Sebastopol? Yes. 
Yeah, and, and I remember going to opening day because that's a big deal. And they had a caricature artist there. And I went with another friend of mine, and we were standing in line for the caricature. And uh-huh. uh, and he was like, I was like, what are you going to have him have you do? You know, because that was a big decision. Like, what's your caricature? What are you going to tell your what hobby is, right? What's your caricature's vocation? <laughs> and It's like you might as well be asking, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Exactly. Because you're going to have like, this thing forever. You're probably going to oh, have this longer than you have your diploma from college. <laughs> So exactly, and so I ended up in line first, and like because he, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna because like this kid actually did take karate, and he's like, I'm gonna have him do you know have me do karate because I take karate. I'm like, oh, that's yeah. rad, and I get up and I'm in I'm in line first, and he's like, so uh, what do you do? I'm like karate. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to settle for him on a skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> See, I I love this because this is kind of like you padding your resume. You know, it's like you didn't actually go to college. You just wrote down that you did. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't, I was not only like, so you, yeah, there were kids for sure that would lie about being a black belt. I mean, I had visual representation of the fact that I would lie that I would take something extracurricular. <laughs> um, how do you feel about Yuri? Were you suspicious from the start or are you just thinking, oh, here we have another comic relief guy? Hey, I'm Yuri. I am Yuri. Oh. Oh. Hey, you, you must be Joyce. Just Joyce. And you are Murray. Murray. <laughs> Yuri. Yuri Murray. Yuri Murray. <laughs> With I'm. Yeah, I hear it. I, I wasn't really very suspicious. So I, it, it, Heather the whole time was like, just don't drink that coffee. And I'm like, huh? It's like, <laughs> I'm like such a dummy. <laughs> it's an affable Russian. I was getting a Yakov Smirnoff vibe from this yeah, guy. Yeah, for sure. I was trying to figure out. This reminds me of something. This might remind me of Spies Like Us a little bit, this storyline. Um, and then I thought, you know, actually there was a thing in the 80s. Every now and again, you get a really affable Russian in a movie like that. Right. And I think it. I think these all sort of. I don't know, stem from the Yakov Smirnoff stand-up. Um, he was actually a, kind of a big deal for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Did, do we, is he still around? Sure. Do we know? Do we know I mean, if he's still around? I, I, I mean, right at this very moment? I mean, or do you mean like we, like, are you throwing up to the audience that's listening to it whenever they're listening to it? Yakov Smirnoff, if you're listening... Uh, please send an email to pst at baldmove.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd like to know. He, what you is, to he is alive. Okay. That's much right. I know. Good I'm to going know. to, I'm going to yakoff.com. <clears throat> mm, don't, don't misspell that one. Yes. <laughs> if it autocorrects, fix it. Um, let's see. There's Yakov's store. I can buy things. Oh, they're redesigning the gift shop. Okay. That's good to know. He looks... If this a if this is a newish picture of him, he looks fantastic. Mm, I doubt it. I doubt it's a newish picture of him. But I will say that now that we're sort of back in the Cold War period, I think we need him again. You know, don't you feel like we need a, we didn't know that we needed him for a long time, but now that we don't have him, mm. I really think it's time for a comeback. He's got a he's got some tour dates. Uh, laugh your mask off. In Branson, Missouri. Why not? Why not? All right. All right. I'm going to roll this thing. We got ourselves a three. This is Nancy and Robin. The gang returns to the Wheeler basement and puzzle over the Victor Creel mystery. Robin and Nancy go to the asylum and pretend to be psych students. Dr. Hatch proves to be an especially stupid smart guy. In speaking with Victor, they learned that the Creels were once a normal family that was cursed by a demon. Dr. Hatch calls their bluff, and the girls run before they can be arrested. Uh, a lot of Silence of the Lambs vibes on this one. Yeah, so that was interesting, too, because Silence of the Lambs is later. I mean, not that you can't draw from 90s, but... It, it was interesting that there was... The, it was a very clear 90s reference, right? Yeah, so it was the first time that I felt that they were making... That they made an intentional 
homage or reference to something that was out of the time period. So that uh-huh. it we didn't. I mean, it it. So I will say that's that is a moment that like I call it a quibble that did take me out of it a little bit because I'm because I'm just now mm-hmm. I'm thinking about that. Like, well, when did Silence of the Lambs come out? Yeah. Not that they have to play solely by those rules, but because it was so much that. Sure. Yeah. And I think at some point. At some point, if they're going to keep going with this, they're going to have to bleed into the 90s, right? This can't just all be all 80s all the time. Right. Uh, I mean, my sense is that, and people can correct me, but my sense is that some of the movie influences have gotten progressively more recent. But it's always sort of been contained in the 80s. Right. So I think that this does, this you know, probably on the cusp of late 80s, early 90s, Silence of the Lambs. Um. And then I thought, well, maybe it's based on a book, and maybe that came out in the eighties. Mm. Oh, um, gotcha. so yeah, I thought that that was definitely an interesting choice. There and there's, I mean, there's no escaping it. Right. There's no other way to interpret that scene. It's absolutely Silence of the Lambs. Um, and then, of course, embedded there, they're sort of calling out the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. They actually right. use the the phrase "waking nightmare" twice. Well, and you've got Robert England as as Victor Creel. That's right. Um, did you have a problem with uh, Doctor Anthony Hatch and how easy he was to to dupe? Yeah, I think I didn't necessarily have a problem with how easy he was to dupe, but I it, the thing that got me as soon as he got suspicious, he still just let them go in. I didn't feel like that speech is going to really change anyone's mind. And it could be that part of my problem is that I know a lot of academics. Mm. I don't I don't usually see academics authentically portrayed on the big screen. Yeah, I think its its main function was um to galvanize the relationship between Nancy and Robin in such a way where even Robin's perceived uh um, weaknesses might actually be able to be used as a strength. I can see that. Yeah. And then yeah. that way, uh, like even within her comic relief, she provides value and it might help break down some of the, uh, the Nancy Robin tension. Yeah. I really liked that. Um, you know, they, they've got this plan to go in and pretend to be grad students or whatever. And they tell Steve, like, you you can't you absolutely can't come like the, <laughs> right like there's if there's one like you can swing a bat we know that right you can babysit pretty well uh there's no way in hell you're pulling off smart guy nerd <laughs> vibe right right that was pretty great um so then with your uh you know so you do a lot with you know your nightmare on elm street uh, clear DNA all over. I mean, not only mm-hmm. Robert England, but like he's scratching and clawing at the table. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, you know, there's the 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 idea of the haunting and all that. And what did you take away from the story? Did you feel like, well, this has made it really a haunting, or are you looking for upside down? Um, yeah, flat. Yeah, it's sort of that. There was a lot of flashback in this episode, right? Mm-hmm. You're flashing back through his memory, and he's nuts. So he's so you're kind of expecting him to be something of an unreliable narrator. Right. Um, I wish that was shorter. I wish that they had done a little bit less there. Yeah, I feel like um, I kind of got it. And I think we see this and we'll, you know, we'll see it again, I think in the in the any Vecna origin could be shorter at this point. I think so. I mean, at this point, you have to have some reveal, right? You need to have some you need to give me some information on Vecna just to kind of continue to reel me into the story. And so why not have this guy, Victor Creel, be your narrator through this journey? I just thought the show has has always been really great with time efficiency. Mm-hmm. Like you can use a scene to do multiple things and you, you, you know, you don't need two minutes to tell this story. You could probably do it in 30 seconds and just, you know, really make it a rich scene that that tells you a lot about the characters but also tells you moves the plot along this scene felt like it was a bit drawn out and i almost felt like it was sort of a sleight of hand and knowing what i know about future episodes 
I do think that they were creating a situation where you're probably looking at the wrong things in the scene. Right. Right. Because when I watched it a second time, it was like, okay, now I'm going to keep my eye on the, the, the young boy. Because right, right. For sure. I, I want to see what he does in this scene. So I, I wish that was that scene was a, a little bit tighter, but I think it was necessary. I did walk away from the first time watching it going, the boy's story seemed, it didn't make, it didn't work. It didn't make sense. Some, I'm all, something's, there's something amiss here. Hmm. Because... Like, it wasn't quite sure why, like, he was spared at this point, right, when I first saw it. You know, like, why was Victor Creel spared? Um, but the boy who goes into a coma and then dies later, I'm like, that doesn't, that, so I, I put a pin in that. I'm like, there's something mm-hmm. about that, right? So I didn't, I wasn't necessarily going where it was going, where it ended up, but I felt like that was something. So I, I you know, I give myself a little bit of credit for at least knowing that there was a little bit of a, of a hint there. And I'll be honest, you know, the whole time I'm thinking, how does this connect to the upside down? How does this connect to the upside down? You know, I, I can't mm-hmm. can't turn that part of my brain off. And I'm still not I guess I'm just still not settled with how this connects plausibly to the world building that they did in previous seasons. So. Right. Well, I and I I and I think I'm in this I'm in a similar spot, but I think I'm less uh um, picky because I feel like I feel like they've done world building, but they've done it very ambiguously. I I still think that there's world building to be done, and I and I would I would argue that well, this is another piece of the world building that's happening because um, we've had a very I mean we we understood the upside down in so much as it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, there are monsters. It's a parallel. Or you know to our uh, our world in some ways, but there's a lot of like. There's a lot of mystery still as to to how it functions, you know, how it was functioning. You're right. Prior, there's room. You know, so I think I think there's I think there's a lot of room. So I think, but what surprises me is that this this is not going. And I think we've already talked about this. Is that the Vecna character was not a character that I would have guessed was in that world. The world seemed right. Right. much more um, alien, right? Alien, much more maybe like. When I think of the monsters, more maybe animalistic, maybe more instinct-driven as opposed to thoughtful and communicative or whatever. Right? Yeah, alien, more like alien for sure. Yeah, more like Predator, a little bit yeah. less like Star Trek. Right. right so. And if you and then you bring in the Nightmare on Elm Street, Star Trekky type thing, or at least that mm-hmm. that essence of it. Like, oh, so now it's like it up it upsets my understanding of it. But in a way, I think that that's. I think that's supposed to be okay. It's just that we have expectations, mm-hmm. and when they're and when they're uh, subverted, it might might feel like it's a problem. When really, it's like, oh, maybe I, I guess I was wrong. You know, I only knew what I knew, and I, and again, going back to sort of the experience we talked about with with the max tension and how this show builds is that it it helps me be a, a different type of viewer and understand the stakes a little differently. You could make the same argument that that my sort of well, I didn't expect this in the upside down. It should be mirroring the like the discoveries that are happening in the show. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily think that either. One, they always like they always suspect that it's never really closed those gates. But now it's like, well, wait, there's a whole other set of problems here that we're we're not equipped for. And I know. Later, when I, where Steve is basically saying, "Yeah, normally we got like a superhero that helps us out for a lot," of <laughs> and I love that part. I love that type of, you know, like ah, we, we're used to this, but we also usually have an ace in the hole here. All right, I'm gonna break my rule here, and I'm gonna jump right to my my sixth non-storyline because it fits with what you're saying. This episode has zero eleven, so there's no eleven in this episode, mm-hmm. and. It's an interesting choice because this has been such an 11 heavy season so far. And, you know, either we're with her being bullied or we're, you know, seeing flashbacks to her time in Hawkins Labs or whatever. And all of a sudden we get zero eleven here. And and I wonder if there's something that's related to the fact that there was zero eleven. Well, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, too, because, I mean... We are now. This this is this is the uh, this is this is the Scooby Doo gang. Right? This is right. all of them in their different spots, and we're all about it. 
uh, we're in, we're interested in them, and now it's it's we've taken we've taken the magic on their side out, and we see what they're all capable of, and we see what now we're really getting to see what their intelligence levels are, their problem solving skills are, um, and there and it does add to the sort of the the tension, right? Because I mean. Max Max's experience might have been different if Eleven was there. We don't know. Well, um, on top of that, it's not just that Eleven isn't in this episode. Eleven has not had her powers these, the, you know, for the first four episodes of this season. That's true. Yeah. So we've completely eliminated a crucial aspect of this show is just a, the sort of the wow factor of Eleven having these superpowers. And you could go all the way back to season one, episode one, where her powers are revealed for the first right. time. So how do they replace this? What they've done is they have created Max as a target, and Max's link to her favorite song is now their salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, if she can sort of return to the living world and deliver this information. I learned this, and you know, now we know the monster has a weak point. Maybe they're turning Max into a savior, a different kind of savior. Well, they're all they're all contributing, right? Like everybody's everybody's contributing something, which is what they've done in in previous uh, seasons for sure. Mm -hmm. But this is this is the regular world versus the upside down, with no bridge between at this point. Um, It's so it does. It just it just hits different. It feels different. These guys are. this is like a nightmare on Elm Street in the sense that it's like, well, there isn't like the kids are getting tortured. But fortunately, there's that one weird kid that can go in and out of dreams anytime they want, you know, and, and we'll just ask them for help, you know. And so there right. so there's something that's that's a little classic about that, where there's a supernatural, uh, you know, villain or enemy. And all we have are our natural you know what we understand in the natural world and so information becomes your your weapon and and so there so there is there's a more sleuthing going on there's more really the, the cheat code is gone um at least you know and again like you said there hasn't there haven't been there the the powers haven't been there this whole uh season but i think there's something that's even more exciting about that because they're operating as if those powers are not at their disposal and they almost acknowledge it like yeah. you know, and they like I said, Stephen Steve does like yeah. Normally we have a superhero, and and they don't, but that's not stopping them from mm-hmm. from trying to get to the bottom of this. Like, what what's the thing that always seems to come up whenever I watch Nightmare on Elm Street? I'm like, well, move to a different street, bro. <laughs> I just hey. want to note, I just want to note that it's kind of remarkable that. Clearly, this is an, a standout episode, not just in this season, but in the series. It has no Eleven, and it makes me wonder, were we all getting a little bit of Eleven fatigue? Mm, that's interesting. Like, if it's just just the right amount of... Well, especially because it, it was Eleven heavy, and then, you know, whether you... You know, it does bring you to a point where, like, do I... Am I like Mike? Do I want to be with 11 if she's just a person interesting <laughs> sure interesting if she's just kind of a socially awkward if she's just a socially freshman. awkward teen yeah do i want to see a whole bunch of episodes about her it's a little bit like luke skywalker like he's pretty cool because he's got these jedi powers but if you take those away he's a little annoying if you find out the kid who says he's a black belt it's not a black belt He's not coming to your party. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna roll this thing. Uh, we have already have a three. We have ourselves a one. This is Mike, Will, and Jonathan. This is about the goons. Yeah, Levin is in danger from the so-called factions within the U.S. government. Mike gets a note from L. It says, "I have to go become a superhero again." The boys plan to slip the goons and drive to Hawkins using Argyle's mystery machine surfer van. Will and Mike have a heart-to-heart, and Will packs his painting in his backpack. Then the place becomes a war zone. The goons get shot by a paramilitary force. Argyle shows up just in time to save the day. 
So, Steve, when the sh- <laughs> when the troops advance on the house, that for me was a legitimate oh shit moment. <laughs> and I don't come to this show really for oh shit moments. That's usually not what I expect, not usually why I tune in, mm-hmm. but this really worked for me to see. Yeah. Well, because you're you're so it's and you talk about the sleight of hand what they do so well because they've got you really going to how are they going to get out of this house and into Argyle yeah. and you yeah. and and you don't necessarily feel that the stakes are super high like it, they are in the sense that we got to get out of the house but mm-hmm. you feel like they're going to pull this off there's it, Argyle's involved so there's going to probably going to be a little comical let's see how they pull this off so I'm disarmed but like but also locked in to see what's going to happen. So when the, when those gunshots start firing, I'm like, what? Yeah, I'm coming. Hold your horses. Jesus Christ. Hello there. What the hell is that? Stay here. I mean, I, it it yeah. totally got me. And well, I, and also you just had this little heart to heart between Mike and. And will and so I'm thinking all about like oh no this complicated relationship, you know one oh, of yeah. them is in love with the other one one of them is totally clueless. What an awkward and then man ride like, with a couple stoners when he pulls out the painting. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and then it's just like war zone, war zone from out of nowhere, and I I started wondering like have I seen this a lot in this show? And I thought well of course all of that underground russia stuff season three had a lot of guns in it right right but this kind of this felt like something different i don't know what this felt like was there a movie that kind of came to mind when you were watching this um it's funny because i couldn't think of one but it's like it felt super familiar like that it had to be right i mean yeah i was i was thinking like you get that it's not the same thing, but you do get that sense in E.T. when you're in the house and you see all of the scientists wearing the, oh, yeah. the white uh, hazmat suits outside. Now, they don't have guns and not shooting people, but you do feel like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? You know, right. This is, so you you do get that sense. But I think that they're mixing in a, a bit of like Red Dawn, maybe. Right. Um, and then, of course, more modern examples is, you know, the. The born identity and things like that. It it was a little spy movie ish. You know, yeah. you're 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 in a spy movie, you're kinda of taking a break in the safe house or whatever, and all of a sudden you you realize that you're surrounded. Yeah, no, I dug it and watching it again, like I really was you know, you look at specific things and, and Will's reaction during that whole sequence is is really worth watching. He is freaking out. And he freaks out so like so authentically, it's it's really something to watch. Well, his like, whole mean, career is freak out, right? That's that's why he got the job. He's a kid yeah, who can freak yeah. out. <laughs> He's doing so good in these scenes where he like they're going from like one wall to the next wall. I mean, it's such a a genuine. Like I'm like, no, that's that's exactly how I would be. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you had a sense? of who the good guys and the bad guys actually are? Or do you feel like, no, the the Owens goons, they're they're evil in their own way, and then the, the paramilitary guys from Sullivan, they're evil in their own way, and the kids are kind of caught in between these two evil forces? Or is one of these factions clearly better than the other? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question, because I think, I think it almost doesn't matter. Um... Because none of them have a real, well, with the exception of like actually in, uh, you know, where the Nina project eventually will be revealed is that um, the enemy is is just like Freddy Krueger, dude, (laughs) you know, and and so everyone's kind of missing that. Right. And and as as far as we know, I mean, the thing that's kind of crazy about this is that the Mike, Will and Jonathan, they don't know anything about that. They don't really have a sense that anything is going on over there. Although they they do they, realize that people are dying in Hawkins, and they know that L is is a in key. danger. Yeah. So yeah. they they know that that she's in danger, and that she's probably a key to this, which suggests that there's something to do with 
you know, with the supernatural yet again. Yeah, and they've they've got a little experience with the upside down. They you know they can put two and two together for sure. But I was wondering because I mentioned last time I said I'm kind of expecting Riser to betray L at some point just because of who he was in Aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at this this episode it was like oh no I they I, I had it wrong because. Clearly, Cause they, these cause they're, goons, they're protecting these guys. Yeah. yeah, clearly these goons are trying to protect the kids, and these paramilitary guys are uh, like goons times ten. But at the end of it, you know, knowing what happens next episode, I'm thinking, I don't think anyone is. I don't right. think there's any good guys in the government right now. Well, yeah, and I think that that's it's an important part of it, right? Because I think it still keeps us guessing a little bit, like who, you know. Who's who's the like? Are these all Yuri when they're when they seem helpful, but then they're really mm-hmm. not? Um, and and I think really what it shows is like, especially when it comes to the how they, they portray adults. I think kind of throughout um, the series is that the reason why the kids are so good at what they're able to do in terms of being able to, you know, figure out what's going on, or is because mm-hmm. they they're not they're not distracted by. You know, whether it's the trappings of capitalism and all of the different things that go along with being an adult, uh, so they can maintain laser focus on the task at hand, which would also happens to sound ridiculous to adults most more more than likely. Um, that it, it sort of adds that like that. So even though the kids are growing up, the adults that are the ones to worry about now become more like it's really just hyper focused on the institutions, right? Whether it's the government, whether it's, sure. um, you know, uh, whatever, right? I mean, it's the military, all these different things are all, they have. Uh, a yeah, and I think that the the caveat here is that, you know, the Powell Callahan local police guys are clearly good guys in this show. Right. But totally oblivious to what's happening. So it's almost like either these adults are corrupt or they're just generally oblivious, which is kind of how the parents have always been on this show. Right. Oblivious and or like skeptics, right? They just, mm-hmm. there's got to be a logical explanation for this. And, and you know, and when you're in, I, what, kind of what I like too about the, why I really buy the small town police officers is you're a small town. You probably deal with a lot of wacky theories and all, you know. <laughs> Sure. So, so it's real. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that they would be dismissive of a lot of things, right? I mean, yeah. just and and just just kind of exhausted, like kind of hoping everything would just will eventually blow over. It would kind of be nice for Hopper to fill Callahan and Powell in on some of what's going on, right? So yeah, <laughs> so they they can kind of do their job. And they're like, did you ever see that binder he left behind? <laughs> no. <laughs> Hey, did we ever follow up on that rotten pumpkin plot from a couple of years ago? No, I guess Hopper just kind of swept that one under the rug. Well, then he got obliterated in a mall fire, so. <laughs> All right, I'm going to roll this. Uh, we already have a three. So this is Hopper, and I'm just going to mention that my son's 14-year-old friend was visiting a couple days ago, and he told me that his favorite storyline is the hopper storyline and his favorite part of this series is when hopper blows up the shed and and runs away and gets on the snowmobile and i guess i just would like to note that it's kind of comforting to know that explosions are still really working with the 14 year old demographic right yeah i you know it's funny i did like the uh like there was that then felt like a little bit of a diehard homage. It was the, yes, and snowmobiles are very a, a very eighties thing to put in an action movie, right. right? Oh yeah, snowmobiles. I think I, like again, if you have a snowmobile today, look to see when it was it, when it was brand new. I'm guessing it was eighty seven. <laughs> well, and you had the uh, the GI Joe character Snowjob, right? Right. I mean, he might have sold tons of snowmobiles. <laughs> I wanted one. I'm like, how can I justify a snowmobile? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You can, you're zipping along without any wheels. It's it's uh. it's the dream. It's the dream. <laughs> um, I did note. I wanted to note because I found it very amusing that Hopper breaks into a Russian Orthodox church 
that has all these icons around and a poster of Elvira. Right. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Super great. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> There's Jesus. There's Mary. Oh, Elvira. That's right. You know, put a little note on that, like for a future Cocoons of Horror uh, podcast episode. Maybe it's time to look at Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Now, I want to ask you this. I had never seen any Elvira when I was a mm. kid. Mm. But every now and again, I would see like, uh, like she would be like on a commercial or something. Right. I think she was and like selling like Halloween Coors Light or something. She's clearly evil, right? I mean, from mm. from a, an eight-year-old's point of view, she's clearly, you know, she looks like a vampire or something. Yeah, evil in all the right ways. But she's all cleavage. Oh, yeah. Right? So it was a very confusing time in my life. In the way that, you know, in, in similar to the way Prince might have been confusing for me as well. <laughs> well, to the point where you go, of course my parents would disapprove, but if this is the devil, I might not go to church on Sunday. <laughs> I was always a little scandalized by Elvira. I think you're supposed to be. Uh, I, I still have never watched any, any. I mean, I, I'm sure that you can watch some of her shtick on YouTube. Well, because she was like a host for shows, right? She sort was a like host a... for shows, but I never knew kind of like, was she just like showing like old classic horror yeah, stuff? Or... Yeah, so sort of like how like a Joe Bob Briggs uh-huh. or like the USA Up All Night type thing. I think that was kind of her thing. She would show you like a horror, like classic horror and have her yeah, little yeah. shtick in between. And then she had the movie, of course, the the Elvira Mistress of the Dark film, That's which I saw right. for the first time last year. <laughs> Is that so? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does that hold up? Uh, the only thing that really holds up is her cleavage. Mm-hmm. That's held up with some sort of effects that I can't explain. <laughs> These are old-timey movie-making tricks that there's no way to know about unless you were <laughs> yeah, exactly. an apprentice oh, been, during the time. She, she's being filmed upside down the whole time is what it is. It's, it's a trick room. <laughs> All right, I think we got this. <laughs> 